You're listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I love to run, period. You can always run faster. Forever, you're going to feel something. You're going to run into roadblocks, but that's also going to teach you how to handle things in life. I don't think we want to be like rocks where we're not affected by anything. It's not maybe a physical thing, but it's a mental thing. There's like two voices in my head, alpha and beta. All I was really trying to do was just keep moving forward. Every single runner knows what that means. My life has a purpose, and maybe it's not what I thought it was going to be, but I think that that does help me. If we all use our gifts, we could do something really special, not for ourselves, but for our family. If we're really good, we could do something for our community, wherever we live. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's your host, Mario Fraley. I am here with my right-hand man and my favorite Boricua, Chris Douglas. <laughs> and we are back with another episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Uh, let's set this one up. Who do we have on tap for today? Yeah, so this is the third installment in the Pillars of Performance, and joining us is Dr. Justin Ross. And, I mean, before we even get to his credentials, which are vast, I mean, oh my goodness, this this was so great. Such a great conversation. Well, thank you. What did you like so much about it? <laughs> well, I mean, the the first episode was about training, and the second one was about sort of, you know, the strength side of things and, and, and being ready to perform. But the mental side of things is such mm-hmm. an important piece, especially in something like the marathon where you're pretty much in your own head for anywhere from two to five hours or five and a half hours, depending on your speed. Um, and it was just, it, I, I just feel like this conversation is so important and it just gets short shrifted pretty much anytime you're talking about training. Yeah. Uh, Justin was the person that I wanted to talk to for this conversation because one, he's a clinical psychologist. He works with a lot of athletes, but he's an avid endurance athlete himself. He's Boston Mm -hmm. Marathon qualifier. Uh, We talked a little bit in the intro of of this one about how he's kind of turned his attention to mountain biking more recently. But I mean, you know, he, he lives in this world as well. And um, it was an awesome conversation because I think, and there's no way to like really measure this breakdown, but a lot of these sports that we partake in, especially long distance running, I think it's more mental than it is physical. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people that I've either coached or just known who can nail all the training. And then when it comes time to perform on race day, totally tank or on the flip side, someone who, you know, may not have the most impressive looking training schedule. And then, you know, when they step up to the line, like they are going to deliver. Um, and we talked a lot about that and like strategies that we can use as athletes to help ourselves become more race ready. But we also just talked about, you know, the relationship that we have to, you know, these sports. And remember there was one part of the conversation where I talked about how I sometimes still, you know, 25 plus years into being a long distance runner, have to remind myself why I got into this sport in the first place when I start taking myself too seriously or, you know, I'm, I'm down in the dumps. And, and mm-hmm. it's just, I, I didn't want this one to end. I wish we could have gone like, you know, two plus hours. Maybe I've got to have them back for a round two, but. Yeah, that's exactly why I felt. And there's one thing, there's one concept that you mentioned at the end, and we were talking about this before we started recording that, you know, 
it was the last question you asked, and I just want to ask you a follow-up question to that one. And this is where he was talking about setting performance standards. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of thinking of sort of the outcome goal, working on your process goals. And I'm curious, everyone who's going to listen to this episode is going to be like, wow, that's really profound. How do I do that in my own training without a coach or with or talking to my coach about it? So I'm curious without sort of bearing the lead or you know giving it all away here, um, when you think about performance standards for your athletes, how, how do you go about kind of figuring out like what those should look like? Yeah, I mean, on a very fundamental level, it's being able to walk away from the finish line knowing that you did the best that you could on that day. If you can look yourself in the mirror and say, did I do everything that I could today to set myself up for success? Even if you weren't objectively successful, you didn't hit the sub three hour goal, you didn't PR, whatever it was, but you did everything in your power to have the best day that you could, then you've got to be able to walk away with your head held high. It doesn't mean there still won't be disappointment there and there's still not things to work on. But I mean, I think that's the most important thing that you've got to be able to walk away from a race with, no matter if you're an elite athlete or if you're doing this for the first time, because no matter what level you're at, like we, we all set those outcome goals and they're important. They're very like tangible, but sometimes it's, it becomes very binary for people. It's like, well, if I didn't do that, it's a a failure. If I didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, hit this, this number, it's, it's a failure. So I think it's being able to like, number one, just look yourself in the mirror and say, did I do everything that I could, everything in my power to set myself up for success, even if it didn't pan out, like is, 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 do I have any regrets basically? Um, I think that's the, the number one thing. And maybe the second part of that, and this is going to also vary from person to person, but, you know, I always ask my athletes, I'm like, what is, and this is before the race, I'll say, what does success look like for you, you know, this Sunday, if that's, if that's when your race is and, and we're talking a, a week out and, and sometimes they will go right to, well, if I run under three hours, that's a success. And on, on some level, yes, that would be sure. successful. But I mean, I, I think of what I've learned over the years, a big part of my job as a, as a coach is to help them to just separate themselves from that a little bit and say like, okay, that's great. But you know, what else, how do you want to feel when you cross the finish line? How do you want to feel, you know, at the halfway mark? You know um, I think those are, are just as important um, as whatever outcome goals we set. Yeah. And I think, you know, the take home on that is just like, this is something as you're doing, working on your splits and doing your Sunday long runs and all this stuff, like these are things that you can be working on while you're working on the physical side. You can be working on the mental side. And that's why I thought this conversation was just incredible. And I can't wait for folks to listen to it. Yeah. And and how this conversation came to be, I've known Justin virtually. We've never actually met in person. I don't think for a few years now, we've exchanged a lot of emails um, about various topics like this. And a few weeks ago, he reached out to me about a new training program that he created and he wanted me to check out and it is for like just mental performance skills in general. And it was available on training peaks. I said to him, Justin, that's great, but I don't use training peaks. Um, (laughs) do you have a version for final surge? And he's like, well, let me look into that. And not even a week later, he's like, yeah, I can get this up on final surge, which is the platform that I use, um, to plan not only uh, my own training, but my training for, my athletes. And he gave me access to the 10 week training plan, dropped it in alongside the one that I created for myself. And every day I get an email reminder of like, this is your like in air quotes workout 
for the day. And, you know, it's usually some copy for me to read or a video that, that I'll have to watch. But, you know, there's often something there for me to think about on my run or workout that day, or even independent from the run or workout, and or some short exercises that take you know, five to 10 minutes tops that I'll do either before the run, um, during or, or afterward. And a lot of, you know, what he is assigning, I kind of like, I think we all know like intuitively, oh, I should be working on these things, Mm -hmm. but unless someone tells you to, to do it, I mean, you forget about it. Like soon as you head out or your mind goes somewhere else. And, um, I've just noticed in, it's almost been about a month now as of, of this conversation that, I've been following this mental performance training plan along with like the running workouts that I'm doing. And every day on my run, I've got something to think about and, and I can feel the difference. Like there's no way to really quantify it, but just like in, in my mind, when I hit those tough moments in a workout and I want to like, you know, bag it and some days you should bag it, but it's like asking myself like, okay, why do you feel this way? You know, what will you get out of pushing on? What will you get by, you know, calling it here and maybe trying to do this again tomorrow? And it just helped me to, I think, retain a little more emotional control, which is important for every athlete, whether it's in training Mm -hmm. or in in racing. It's like, you know, not letting those lows uh, bring you down too much, not letting those highs excite you too much, and and really just trying to be present. We talked a lot about this Mm -hmm. in in the conversation, like the importance of just presence um, as an athlete and how that's something that you can actually practice. And, you know, these skills, much like running faster, are things that you can and should practice. Yeah. I mean, I love even uh, you're referring to the performance psychology training plan, which is on Final Surge and training peaks. I mean, I love that it's a training plan because that's what it is. You have to train your mind as you train your body for peak performance and yeah, and the whole focus on being present and mindfulness. I mean, anyway, I think we've uh <laughs> Yeah, just People the last go thing we'll go we'll go out on. <laughs> I mean, we talked about how these um these two things intersect. You know, they're not they're not separate. Um, you know, sometimes they run parallel to each other, but they, they intersect in a lot of places and it's important to, you know, work on each independently, but also simultaneously. Totally. Totally. So before we get to this conversation, which I'm, I know everyone's super hyped on to to listen to, should we shout out our sponsors? Yes. Well, this conversation doesn't happen without the support from our sponsors. And the first is my longtime partner, Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand. I I was going to say apparel brand. They make amazing apparel and you should totally check it out on tracksmith.com slash Mario. But I mean, just what they do to celebrate the history and culture of the sport through that apparel, through the events that they put on, through the content that they put out is just unmatched in the running space. I mean, they are just so, so true to the sport. And that's a big reason why I've been a supporter of this brand since day one. Um, If you see me out running, you see me at the races. I mean, I am head to toe in Tracksmith. Uh, My favorite piece, which I've talked about many a time now, but I'm just going to keep hammering at home, is the Alston Half Tight. Um, I've got them in a few different colors. They come in a lined and unlined version. They're my, I mean, I put those half tights on and I know it's a go fast day. Um, <laughs> you know, that's my workout tight. That's my racing tight. Um, they're great whether you're doing like, you know, speed work or even long runs. And, you know, some people are like, oh, I have tights on a, on a long run. No, these are better than any pair of shorts because they actually have a ton of pockets. Um, there's three pockets in the back, a zip where you can put um, credit card, key, whatever, and then 
one on each side of that where you can just stuff it full of gels. I mean, I can, I can easily carry, I've stuffed as much as six gels into those pockets, three in each one. Um, Impressive. So they're, I mean, they're great. I can't say, you know, enough good things about the Alston half type, but anything else that's out in their recently released spring collection, I, I think like best in class. Um, well, I will say I just got a pair of Alston half tights on your recommendation. I've been rocking the Reggie's for a while yep. and I took them out on a run uh, yesterday, which was rainy and miserable and muddy. And they were amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. And the Reggie's a great half tight too. The big difference between the two, um, the material is a little bit different, but for me, it's the little grippies at the bottom of the, mm-hmm. the Alston, which go above the knee, almost like a, like a cycling bib sort of, yep. and they just don't slide up your leg. Whereas the Reggie doesn't have the grippies. It has like an elastic down there. So they do stay in place, but they are going to ride up the longer that you run and not in an uncomfortable way, but I, I like my half tights to stay in place. So I'm glad that you got a pair and that they worked out well for you in the rain yesterday. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were totally soaked, but if you're going to be totally soaked, might as well be super comfortable. <laughs> so if you want to check anything out from Tracksmith, go to tracksmith.com slash Mario. When you check out, if you use the code Mario give, that's M A R I O and then give G I V E in all caps that will save you shipping. Uh, you'll get free shipping on your order. And then 5% of your purchase will go to the friendly house, which is an organization that I chose because it's, I mean, basically where I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, I went there for after school program. I went there for summer camp. I played bitty basketball there and they just do a ton, um, for the community in Worcester, especially youth. And it just means a lot to me that a percentage of every purchase goes to support, um, you know, a, an organization that, you know, really uh, had a profound impact in my life. Love it. Love it. And then our, our, our second sponsor for this show is Gooder. Another longtime supporter of the morning shakeout stoked to be partnering with Gooder. I think these are the best running sunglasses that you can buy. They're also some of the most affordable running sunglasses that you can buy at like 25 to 35 bucks a piece. Uh, I'm still a big fan uh, of the OGs. I've got it. I mean, I've just got like an ugly dome and (laughs) sunglasses just don't look good on me, but the OGs are, you know, pretty standard style. They come in a wide array of colors. Um, you know, I can't, they have lenses that are like completely round or like the big frames. I just don't like how those look on my face, but, um, if you go to gooder.com slash Mario, that's G O O D R.com slash Mario. You can check out their full line of sunglasses, but I mean, these are great. They're made for running and an active lifestyle. They're lightweight, they're polarized. So they're going to protect your eyes. Um, you know, there's just a lot of fun styles and and yeah. colors. I mean, my again, my favorites are the OGs. Um, a ginger soul. That's that's an actual color. It's kind of black. Um, is is probably my my main go to. I'm not super fun in that way, but they've got you know a whole rainbow of colors. You can check them out. But if you go to gooder.com/mario or use the code Mario15 when you check out, you will get free shipping on your order. All right. So with that, let's get to this conversation with Dr. Justin Ross. All right, Dr. Justin Ross, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Mario, it's so great to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited for this conversation in particular because when I put my coaching hat on, I mean, I think of coaching as 
you know, kind of these two sides, like there's the physiological side of coaching, which I've already had conversations with other folks about, and is an important part of training as an athlete. But I'm, I'm most interested in the psychological side of things. And maybe some of that's my background. I majored in philosophy and psychology in college. So um, that's just where my own interests lie. But in all the years that I've been an athlete and that I've been a coach, I mean, it's, it's just become clearer and clearer and clearer to me that the psychological side of things is super important, but it's also really misunderstood. And I couldn't think of a better person to like really dig into the weeds of that with than you. So um, we'll go there in a little bit. But before we do, I just I want to talk about you and just your background. Um, you are an endurance athlete yourself, avid runner. I think you've run six Boston marathons. You've done some mountain bike stuff, but you're also a clinical psychologist. That's what you do for work. And in a lot of your work, you've been able to like meld those two things together. So let's start with the endurance athlete side of things. Um, on your website, you say you're a late onset endurance athlete, which I think a lot of people listening to this can probably resonate with, but how did endurance sports and maybe running in particular come into your life? Yeah. Well, I've always loved sports as a kid I grew up as a multi-sport athlete. You know, I played baseball and basketball and soccer, and it was just a huge part of my identity and my sense of well-being. And I, I never really did any traditional endurance sports as as a kid, and didn't find them until until I was a graduate student uh, when I moved out to Denver. And it really just started as a as a fascination based on access. You know, I live in Denver, and the access to the outdoors is pretty amazing. So. Um, took on a bike MS event just as a charity event, raised some money for a great cause and enjoy that idea of what is it like to sort of go out for many hours and see what happens. And I really didn't start getting competitive until um, until I decided to just try a marathon. And I thought it was going to be like a one and done kind of thing, right? I want to check it off the bucket list, have that experience and then move on. And, um, you know, I finished my first marathon and I said at the finish line, like, oh, yeah, cool. I, I feel really great. One and done. I don't think I ever need to do that again. And about two hours later, I was like, mm, pretty sure I could do that better. <laughs> right. And so for me, that was really the catalyst to pursuing sport more from this kind of self-exploration. I want to see what I'm capable of. I've bounced around quite a bit from uh, running marathons to doing some triathlons, half Ironman distances. Um, I then caught the bug to qualify for Boston and and did that and, and had my experience with Boston a number of times. And then really since COVID, I've just kind of fallen back in love with cycling. Um, last year, I did the Leadville Trail 100 mountain bike race and I'm spending most of my time with my, my endurance time on the bike these days. Okay. And on the psychology side of things. I mean, you mentioned how you were in grad school in Denver. When did you just start to take an interest in that field? Yeah, I think I've always been really interested in the idea of like what sits at the center of well-being, what sits at the center of health, what sits at the center of being able to perform optimally in life. And when I went to college, I really thought I was going to go down sort of the, the physical the physical journey of that, right? Athletic training, physical therapy, something related to how the body works. And it wasn't until I took a few psychology classes that I started to understand the intersection of just how critical the mind is to being healthy, but also to performing well. 
So from there, I pursued a graduate degree in, in clinical psychology at the University of Denver that really allowed this, this understanding, this interplay of the mind and the body, both in terms of health, but also in terms of performance. Yeah. One of the words that you just used there jumped out to me, and, and I think it's the perfect word, and that's intersection. And that's sort of how I, I think about it. And as I was saying in the introduction to this episode, like there's the physiological side of it and the psychological side of it. And I think those two things intersect, but they also run in parallel to one another and, and interact at, at nearly like every step of the journey. And from my vantage point, it seems a lot of athletes try to separate the two and don't realize it's, it's actually, it's not just your, your mind and your body as two separate things. Like it, it is a mind body system and like for it to be a system, those things have to like intersect and interact, um, and really work off of each other in order to get you where you would like to go. Absolutely. It's, it is a mind body system and they have to play well together and your mind is always with you just like your body is. And there's this constant narrative that we have. There's this constant appraisal of what you're experiencing. And there's this underlying identity system that we all have based on belief and experience that sorts of guides us into what we think we're capable of or what we think our limits are. And for any endurance athlete, that is really the starting point is really understanding this kind of core based framework, this internal representation you have for yourself in terms of what you're working on and what you think you're capable of, right? Elliot Kipchoge has this great saying, right? No human is limited, which I've always, full disclosure, I've always, I've always kind of hated that statement because I think it's a little misguided. I think we're very limited as human beings, but I think the sentiment of what he's saying is very accurate, which is a lot of us talk ourselves out of getting close to those limits. We talk ourselves down from trying or for pushing based out of fear, based out of anxiety, or based out of those, those internal ideas of who we think we are as humans. Yeah. Um, just kind of building off of that a little bit. I mean, one thing that, that I've observed in all my years around the sport and particularly as a coach is there is this almost like overemphasis on, on the body and how we train the body and the types of workouts that we need to do to get faster, to build endurance, to, you know, dial in that specific endurance, to hit our marathon goal, like that, that sort of thing. And one of the things that you touch on in your, I guess I would call this like an online course or training program that I'm actually taking right now is, is the mind actually leads all of that. Like it all starts with the mind. It's like, you can't really have this like body first approach. I'd love to just like start by digging into that with you. Like how, how all of these things, like just the idea to sign up for one of these events, like it actually like starts in your mind and that's not an inconsequential thing. And I think a lot of us just skip over that and just go right to how do I train for this thing? And like, what workouts do I need to do? And you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Everything we do starts in the mind, right? Like signing up for a race for the first time or contemplating a new challenge, whether that's by distance or by speed or by pace, it all starts with a thought. And I think you're right. We often then just hop over it. We hit register and then we're like, give me the training plan. Let's go. And part of it, it's saying like, okay, well, let's, let's also look at the mental side of what you're training for, right? Let's understand some of these principles of your, of your framework, of your identity, of psychological principles that lead you to getting the most out of your training. 
And so this training class that I created is is really um, about helping people understand those key principles to take into their daily training so that they're training their, their mind just as much as they're training their body. Yeah, I mean, speaking for myself, I, I think it's great. It's like every day I get an email that has my, my quote-unquote workout for the day, and it's usually just a five to ten minute exercise that you know I can do almost anywhere. But what what's really been eye-opening to me about that is actually just carving out the five to 10 minutes a day to focus on, on just that, like what I need to do to like literally wrap my head around some of these ideas and concepts that you present. And it struck me as, as I'm like getting these, I'm like, oh, this, this isn't normal. Um, most people don't think of training your mind in, in this way. Like we talk about it and I think there is a way to do that. That's concurrent with the actual workouts that you're doing. I want to talk about that later in this conversation, but why is it important to just carve out that little bit of time to focus on just your mind and how to set yourself up like for a given day? Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot about it in, in a very strange way. I think about it. It's like learning another language. Right. So it, at this stage, I'm pretty much a monolingual speak, speaker. I can speak un poquito espanol, right? Not a mas. But if I really wanted to learn Spanish, I would need to dedicate time and energy and repetition to developing that language. Right. And it doesn't have to be cumbersome. It could be five, 10, 30 minutes a day. But the practice is what's going to allow me to develop that skill. Now, we need to think about our mind as in our psychology is like a language system. And we all grew up with a native language, a native way of thinking about who we are and what we're capable of. Just like you learned English, you learned English by being around it, right? That's what was spoken in the home and what your community spoke and what was taught in school. So you just naturally gravitate, gravitated towards it. Your way of thinking about yourself is the exact same guiding principles. So now if you want to learn a different mindset, right? So mindset is a big word in this space. The truth is you can have whatever kind of mindset you want in your life. I was listening to, to NPR this morning, and coincidentally, they were talking about the weather in California, and they were talking about it from this perspective of a drought-based mindset. And it, it made me realize, like, oh, yeah, like that's a, that's a way of thinking, a way of thinking about your relationship to something. Now, you can have whatever kind of athlete mindset you want. You can be a mentally tough athlete or a kind and compassionate athlete or a gritty athlete or a self-disparaging athlete. Those are all mindsets you can develop, but you have to decide for yourself what you want, and then you have to embed that in just about every phase of the training cycle, sort of the pre-training phase, the during the training phase, and then when you're putting your workout away and you're kind of reviewing and wrapping it up. And when you do that, it's not cumbersome. It's five, 10 minutes a day. It can happen in the middle of your workout, but you start to develop these very tangible ways of creating a strength-based, performance-based, mentally tough athlete. Yeah. I love the analogy about learning a language and doing a few minutes every day. And if you do that for long enough and you're around it, um, that's how you're going to learn and become more proficient. And I think of, of the actual running training the same way. It's like the path to sustainable success. I had this conversation with Mark Coogan in the first episode in, in this series, it's like his philosophy is, is B plus workouts. But what that means is just consistency over time, like just not trying to hit a home run every time 
you go to the track. It's like just trying to be consistently good. But the key word there is consistency. And we hear that all the time. And like when I'm coaching someone, I'd rather have them doing a little bit more often than doing these big things like, you know, every few days or something like that. I really want to build that consistency. And I think it's probably the same with, with mental training, right? It's like, um, people try to cram before a marathon. It's like they got a month to go and it's like, all right, I better like get on top of the long runs now. Cause I'm feeling like a little bit behind. So I need to check those boxes. And I, I see this on the mental side of things as well. It's like, Oh, I'm like a month out from the race and I haven't been doing these exercises for a few minutes every day. So they almost try to go like overboard on it. And I, I can't imagine that that's a, a winning strategy for success, especially going into something big like a competition. Yeah, it's it's the exact same principle, right? Consistency over time wins. And right now, you know, as we're recording this, we're we're about a month out from Boston and I get a fair amount of people reach out and ask like, okay, I want to be mentally tough for Boston. Can you help me? And the answer is yes. And what have you been doing? Talk me through your training up to now, right? Let's review the, the principles and the practices and the self-talk and the way you think about yourself in the past few months, because that is a guiding principle for what you can either build off of, or you need to work on maybe tweaking and changing in the lead up to a big race. Mm-hmm. From a sporting standpoint, when do people usually seek you out for help? Is it in that month before a race? Is it when they're first getting into the sport? Is it after they've experienced a, a low period that they're trying to get out of or some combination of all of those things? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and as a coach, um, I've been doing this for a while and, and now I get it from all angles. And I get some folks who come in very proactively six months in advance and they want to build a very robust framework and identify a number of skills to take into the race. Um, I do have a fair amount of people cramming for the test and wanting to work on things, you know, in the last month or few weeks before a big event. And there's absolutely principles that can be applied applied to both. I think the recommendation, sort of like the physiological development, consistency over time wins. So if you think about giving yourself a six-month window or a three-month window to really work on these skills, they're going to gel much better than if you're trying to cram them all in in the, in the last month. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you typically start with an athlete when they come to you seeking your help? Yeah. So the first question is always, why now? What has led to you seeking this type of work now? Right. And, and often there's a really compelling answer right? Oh, this event, it really means a lot to me for one reason or another. Or I've noticed that I've been struggling with something, whatever that may be, and I want help, right? So the why now is a really important element because that helps us understand, are there anxieties and stresses and past events that we need to really work on repairing? Or is this all about building from the ground up to, to really enhance your performance, so that's always the, the first element. And then the second is asking and, and gaining information. What have you done before? Right. Again, everybody that comes to me already speaks English. So let me help understand what your English system is already. What do you do in your mind when things get tough? What, what do you say to yourself? How do you hold your attention? What do you do when things are easier? It's an aerobic day. Where does your mind go? Right. What is it that you tell yourself about your capabilities and your long-term goals and your ability to achieve them. 
All of those are really important elements to set the stage for the psychological framework that an athlete has. In running, endurance sports in general, oftentimes we'll look at an athlete that we're competing against or maybe that we train with and we'll say, oh, they're just, they're so mentally tough. And I, I feel like that phrase gets just thrown around a lot, the mentally tough athlete. When when you hear that, what is your first reaction? Yeah. So I, I, always, I get to play psychologist for a minute and I always throw it back on somebody. So I'm going to ask you, Mario, what what, it, what does mental toughness mean to you as an individual, as a coach? To me, it's looking at someone who can be really present in the moment that they're in and whether something's going really well or like shit's just completely hitting the fan, they are able to just keep themselves calm, evaluate what it is that's going on and make the right decision in, in that moment that's going to help them get where they want to go. Yeah. So there, I'm going to pull on a couple of threads in what you said, because they're all really important elements. The first is presence, right? Being able to be present in the moment. Presence is a trainable skill. You can train yourself to learn how to be present. The second is you talked about being calm. Right. So having the ability to train calm, emotionally regulate, that is also a skill you can develop. The third is then decision making in pursuit of a goal that has meaning for you. Right. And that decision making, decision making is a psychological skill. The importance behind a goal is also a predetermined skill. All of those elements to mental toughness is are trainable. So the first part to me about mental toughness is one, you have to identify it for yourself. What does it mean for you to be mentally tough? And if you pull apart the elements, how do you start training them on a regular basis so that in a moment of challenge, you can execute? Now, there's this study that, that just came out that I want to talk about for a minute because it's really interesting to me. And it was looking at this idea of mental toughness because it is so often thrown around without a whole lot of uh, understanding behind it. There's actually a study a few years ago or a paper written that said that anything that's connected to performing well, it, any kind of characteristic or trait gets labeled as mentally tough. And so we don't have a great framework for that. Well, this model seeks to understand that. So the study did two things, and I'll, I'll explain the second part because it's the most interesting. They took a group of cyclists and they did a 20-minute FTP test, functional threshold power test, gold standard in cycling. How much power can you put out in 20 minutes? It's like a 20-minute time trial. And they brought them in and they, they tested this. And then they brought them in a week later and they said, okay, how do you want to perform relative to your first test a week ago? And the overall ranking was about 2.4% faster or better than the first trial, right? We're athletes. We want to perform better. That's just what we do. So they started going, right? And at like the halfway mark of this test, the researchers freaked out and the computer shut down and the athletes didn't have access to see their data. And the researchers were, they were playing, but they were faking like, um, oh, continue, please just keep going. We have it all figured out. We're working to get it back online. And meanwhile, they were still tracking all the data and they wanted to see what would happen in that moment. Because their model is this, one, mental toughness 
to your point, is it's not something you're born with. It's not an embedded trait of who you are. It's a state that you can deploy when needed. Now, when that's needed is when you have a goal that you've set for yourself that's meaningful that becomes challenged, right? So a challenging goal that becomes challenged and you're not quite sure what's going to happen, right? That's part two. We go there to self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is a psychological set of skills that's really based on our understanding of our past experience and what we do in hard moments, not only in terms of securing outcomes and hitting goals, but in how we show up when things really get pushed and really get challenged, right? That's a really important part. And then the last element is around what they call self-control, our ability to have emotional regulation, to resist the urge to stop when maybe in our mind it's, well, why does it even matter? There's no data being recorded. This is pointless, right? Or I'm not Mm going to reach my goals now that I can't see them. So those are maybe some guideposts for us to think about as it relates to this term of mental toughness. Yeah, no, I I like that a lot. And I mean, for me, it it still comes back to presence. Like that's the first thing that that I think of, because when I'm working with my athletes, whether we're at the track for a workout and most certainly on race day, I mean, one of the biggest things that I'm trying to help them with is just that emotional control, because I've seen so many, certainly races ruined, but also just people who can sabotage their own training by being unable to control their emotions. And more often than not, in my observation, it's because they get worked up about, you know, the rep that they just missed, uh, their target split on, or in a mar- like a marathon, for example, they're thinking ahead to heartbreak hill at, you know, mile 20 and they're not running the mile that they're in. So then they, they just start getting worked up about what just happened or what's to come. And they're, you know, and they're not completely, in the moment. And um, hearing you describe that study, I'm like, oh, I could see, like, I'm thinking about the the cyclists who are being tested and the, the ones who are like, oh, this is just like a complete waste of my time. And then the ones who are like, ah, oh, maybe like, I don't know, they're going to miss some data now because they're not able to get this thing back online versus the one who is just sitting there and is like, all right, I can't control that. I'm just going to sit here and pedal as hard as I can until they tell me to stop. Right, right. It's that moment of decision. But all of that decision occurs in the present moment. And the ability to come back and to not spiral, to have that regulation of your mind is absolutely critical in training and in executing on race day. Yeah. In thinking of the the course that I'm currently taking or the, the training program that you've developed. I can't remember what day this was, but it was one of the, it's in the first week. And there's a whole bit on there um, about mindfulness and how it helps athletes. And I'd love to just like dig into that with you, because for me, I think you described this in the course too. It's like mindfulness is about, you know, presence. And it, it feels like to me reading that and for it being so early in this course, that's a, that's also just like an important element of, you know, just being a, a mentally strong and resilient athlete. Yeah, I think presence is maybe one of the first psychological skills that we should all be training or we could all be training. Mm. And the pathway to training presence is through some kind of practice. And the practice that's most talked about these days is mindfulness, right? And mindfulness is really the art and the act of paying attention 
in a particular way, which is on purpose and right here, right now. There's also an added element of trying to reduce judgment. That part's hard. I think the first part is presence. So it's as simple as, as, as you're listening to this conversation, you know, can you feel your feet in your shoes or in your socks? Can you feel contact points along your legs and your back of what you're sitting on? Right? Can you take a moment to observe your surroundings and feel the environment that you're in? And can you feel your breath? Right? Can you take a moment to just notice those sensations of breathing? And that ability to bring presence allows everything else to be possible. One of my favorite sayings is you can't change what you're not aware of. And when you're not aware, you are not making good decisions. So awareness is the starting point for being able to stack on any other kind of skill that you want to develop as an athlete. Yeah. I want to talk about some of those skills before we get into that. I almost want to like backtrack a little bit. Um, something I pulled out of the course was debunking these three myths that you have about just, you know, what you do. Um, let's just call it sports psychology that one, it's only for professional or, or elite level athletes. Uh, two, you know, if you know, you're going to work on your mental game, then something must be be wrong with you uh, because that's the only reason that you would do it. And three, that if you do work on these things, um, you're you're going to be bulletproof. And I think it'd actually be very helpful to just kind of go through each of those three things. And for people listening to this, like understanding why this is such an important piece of the performance puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the three myths I, I hear the most often. And, and I really like to start with that because I think it's an important element to this equation. So, so the first one, the first myth, this is only for professionals or those on the world stage. And the debunk there is, is no, anybody with a mind can benefit from this, right? If, if you have a mind and you are into performance, these skills can help you in some way, shape or form. So much of this is, uh, is about understanding your deep humanity and working with it, right? That's really element number two or myth two, which is if I'm going to do this work, it means that I'm broken. It means that something's wrong. I'm only going to work on sports psychology if I'm having problems. And the truth is that this is uh, more times than not developed as a proactive set of skills and performance enhancers, right? Not because something is wrong with you. Everything we talk about in the course is very relatable because it's deeply human, mm -hmm. right? I don't know a single performer on any stage who doesn't have some type of anxiety prior to competition. Anxiety is normal. The ability to manage it and work through it is a set of resources and a set of skills. Now, the third is, you know, oh, that if I just unlock my mind, I'm just going to break through walls and be bulletproof. <laughs> and this is the idea of, well, no, that's not true either. This is going to help you squeeze everything out of your performance. It's sort of like getting the last bit of juice out of the container, the last bit of paste out of the toothpaste tube. It helps you get everything out of your performance that you're wanting. But it doesn't just mean that you can think your way to you know, a sub four minute mile or a PR in the marathon or these record breaking feats. There's still a whole lot of physiological development that has to happen this just enhances and augments all of that experience. Sounds like that intersection that you mentioned at the top of this conversation. That's it, man. That mind-body system, that intersection is so foundationally important. 
Yeah. Moving on from that, I mean, you get into what you call the foundation and, you know, you want to start with like this, this understanding of training and racing from a place of love versus a a place of fear. And I see this with athletes that I work with and, you know, I'm certainly, um, I don't want to say guilty. That feels like the, the wrong word. I've certainly, um, done this myself where I've just operated from, you know, a place of fear. And I feel like that's a a lot of athletes. Um, They're either fearful that they won't hit their goal or they won't make the team or they won't belong, you know, in a group or they won't make it to the starting line, Um, whatever it happens to be. Like, I think those are very like obvious fears that a lot of athletes have. But, you know, when athletes are coming to you, um, what are you seeing from that vantage point as it relates to just um, coming into this with, you know, with a, a, mindset of, of fear versus love and, and how do you kind of help them walk that path? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think this is an important foundational element for all of us to understand about ourselves, right? That, that we are, we are either, and it's not as clear cut as I make it sound as love or fear, but I do think there are some pillars there. A lot of us approach sport because it is enhancing and it's joyful and it creates this, this connection, right? We do it because it comes from a place of love, right? And love is exactly that. It enhances our lives, right? Versus a lot of people come into sport or they get to this place, maybe not initially, but over time where it becomes a fear-based reaction. And I see this a lot in more seasoned athletes, right? Where it started from a place of love, but now it got to a point of, well, I have to maintain or else, right? I have to maintain a certain amount of volume or else. I have to maintain a certain type of pace or else. The, the greatest experience I personally had at scale with this was 2017 Boston Marathon, which was uh, my first time running. And it was, a, it was a warm year. And I knew at the 5K mark that, you know, any type of PR attempt was just going to not happen that day because it was really warm. So for me, I had psychological flexibility and I backed it down and I went into it to just enjoy the day. I celebrated the day. When I got to the finish line, I wanted to talk to everybody. I just wanted to like high five and ask people about their day and their experience. And so many people were just absolutely devastated about their performance. They were crushed. And I, it took me a minute to understand it. And as I was talking to people from all over the country and all over the world, what kept coming back was I didn't requalify for Boston. I didn't requalify for Boston. I didn't requalify for Boston. And I was like, wait a minute, guys, the, the finish line is like literally right there. It's, it's 50 feet away. You're missing the experience. But it came from this place of fear. If I don't requalify, if I don't hit these marks, then what? Then I don't know who I am or my community doesn't know who I am. And it, it's this fear-based constrictive approach. It's, uh, it's interesting that you mention that example because I ran Boston that year. And I remember walking to the start line and it was close to 70 degrees already. And I was really fit that year. And I was hoping to run under 230 at Boston for the first time. And, you know, putting my coach hat on, I was like, all right, this isn't the day to do it. You just got to dial back your expectations, put together a solid race. There's going to be a lot of carnage out there. And then I got caught up in the excitement as one does at Boston. I was running with a friend of mine and we're, you know, right on sub 230 pace through seven miles. And it was already, you know, it was already getting to me. And I ended up walking through the last five aid stations, um, 
I requalified, but I, I mean, I, I ran way off of what I, I could have run had I, I run a smart race. And it's the first marathon that I've ever got emotional after even my first one, my personal best. And, uh, I couldn't even tell you what it was. I remember Strava had a pop-up and I was like in a beanbag, just crying my eyes out, um, you know, after, after that race. And, and I, I think, you know, hearing you describe that, I was, I was just, you know, I was like, Oh, what does this, what does this say about me? Um, you know, does this mean like sub two thirties never going to happen? Like, I, I mean, all of this stuff, it was probably just this like, you know, tidal wave of, of emotion, but I was, I was definitely like that person around you who was like, oh, this, is, <laughs> this is like the worst thing, but uh, interesting that you brought that one up. Yeah. Because it's, it's based on this relationship we have with expectations Yeah, and you're right. Like you, you did all the things that we do, right. Dial back expectations, right. Temper effort. Because, you know, there's going to be a lot of carnage out there. And there was. And at the end of the day, it's it felt like maybe disappointment, self-disappointment mm-hmm. that I wasn't able to execute. But then the questioning that comes after is what really gets to people. What does this mean? Does it mean I'll never get there? Does this mean I'm not the kind of athlete that I want to be? Does this mean da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da? And that is a normal part yep. of having a mind and being an athlete. Yeah, that that's all of it. And I mean, for me, um, as a coach too, I had a bunch of athletes there. I'm like, what does this say? You know, it's like, what does this say about me as a as a coach? Um, what does this you know what is, what does this mean? Disappointed in myself for the execution. Um, and I will say, like, I I went back the next year, and it was the complete opposite in terms of conditions. It was you know 36 degrees and raining and you know really really windy. And I still had that taste in my mouth from the year before, but it was, you know, it was different types of conditions, but similar type of day where it was like, all right, time is out the window. You just need to like survive this one. And I I went in with that mindset and um, eased into the race rather than trying to go out at at a certain pace, was making sure I could control the things I could control, you know, getting down fuel early on when I could still feel my fingers, that sort of thing. And it ended up being a a great day. I mean, it wasn't my fastest time, but it was one of my highest placings that I've ever had at Boston. I remember like going by people the entire way and it, um, you know, felt so much better at the finish because, I mean, there was a lot of carnage that day too for the opposite reasons. And, you know, it it was just a, a very like, huge contrast, um, just in, in how I approached each of those races and then how I felt about, you know, how I felt about them afterward. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I, I try to coach a lot of folks that I work with about Boston specifically is it's sort of like climbing Mount Everest. And Mm -hmm. here's the analogy, right? Like people who go and climb Mount Everest, they do so with the hope that the window of opportunity to summit presents itself. And it may or may not, Right. And it can be really disappointing if they don't have that window to give it a go to try to summit. Boston's the same thing. And what I see for people is if you can go in with a lot of psychological flexibility to decide based on conditions how you want to express your fitness on that day, you can walk away feeling really, really good. So I always work from the end back. How do you want to feel at the finish line in Boston? Right. And how you feel doesn't have to be dependent on your race time. It can be really connected to how you express your fitness, right? You can have the same RPE, right? The same rate of perceived exertion and the same effort on any given day and have a widely variable outcome based on your time. 
if that's your goal, I want to lay it out there on the course, then that's what you have to sort of rest your, your, um, your takeaway in, right? If you want to go into it and really have it be a celebration of the experience, because Boston is a pretty amazing experience, then let that day be about the celebration. You don't have to let your time dictate your identity in a sport like this. Yeah. Let's go back to the foundation. So, you know, we talked about coming into it with this, you know, this almost fear-based mindset. And I imagine, you know, a goal in training your mind is to shift it toward coming at it from more of a perspective of love. How do you begin to work with someone in just traveling that path from fear to love? Yeah. One of the the first questions everybody can ask themselves is what brings you joy in sport? What about it is joyful? Right. And everybody has a different answer. Right. So for me, um, it's about like from right now, I don't run a lot anymore, but running with my dog, being outside, being in nature, feeling that moment of connection is really powerful. That brings me a lot of joy. Right. For others, what will happen is over time, that joy that I think so many of us began with at some point in a running career has crossed the bridge to it's all about numbers. It's all about data. It's all about performance. And so understanding, again, that that is a natural progression that happens and you can be a very high performer pursuing goals and times and numbers while also reconnecting and finding those elements of joy that got you started in the first place. And ultimately, I think what what I see is the the intersection of both of those places, the goal pursuit with the joy and connection and the ability to have adaptability between the two is a really healthy place to be. Yeah, I see a lot of that myself from a coaching standpoint, especially in this day and age where um, from a data standpoint, I mean, you can track pretty much everything and it's easy to get paralyzed by it. And, you know, people, what is, what do these numbers mean? My recovery score is too low. And they just, you know, they start trying to quantify everything and it's like, they, they sort of lose focus on what's really important. And and in those situations, you know, sometimes I, I just have to remind them you know, when it's, when it's just running in general, maybe it's not even pursuing a, a certain race and running becomes this burden. I'm like, why'd you get into the sport in the first place? Um, and I remind myself of that a lot of times too. And I find myself taking myself too, too seriously. Um, and the first time I ever did that, I thought it was like the cheesiest thing in the entire world. Um, but when you like really do it and spend some time thinking about that, it's a really eye-opening exercise to just literally go back to your beginnings and be like, why did you start doing this in, in the first place? And I think a lot of us, um, the longer that we're in these sports, can lose touch with that. Absolutely, right? There's, I sometimes refer to it as the over-quantified athlete, right? Yeah. Because we have these these data collectors on our watches that measure all kinds of things, and a lot of them probably don't really matter at all. And yet when I watch my kids, you know, outside or in the backyard and they're running around or they're on their bikes or riding around the neighborhood, they don't have a Garmin or a watch tracking anything. They're just doing it because it feels good and it's fun and they're laughing and they're giggling. And it like, for me, those are the moments like, oh yeah, that's, that's ultimately the human element of this. The pursuit of doing that well is also an element of this, but that can't override the joy we feel just in the process in, in and of itself. Yeah. Here's a question that, that came up as you were describing that. And 
it may come across as, as messy, but, but hear me out. How do you work with athletes who come into you and they have just this engineer's mindset about sport? Like everything is quantifiable and they want, you know, one plus two to equal three. And, you know, if that happens, it gives them the confidence that they're ready to, you know, do whatever on, on race day. When a lot of like this mental training, as far as I know, in my experience with it, it's not really you know, quantifiable. You can't really hook yourself up to something that's going to measure, you know, whether or not you're, you know, you're truly ready. Like it's just a little more ambiguous in, in that way. How do you, how do you help that type of athlete, um, you know, to really just embrace the importance of training the mind, even though it's something that they can't, you know, pin down to, you know, the 10th of a second. Yeah. I, yeah, it's a really interesting question, right? Because I think, there's a couple elements that that come out for me. One is again the reminder that um, that with running, especially, you can do everything right. You can have the most beautiful 16 week training you've ever had in your life, and it still doesn't work out on race day for whatever reason, right? That is both the beauty and the frustration of endurance sports, right? Everything can go right, and it still doesn't gel the way you want it to. Right, so running is really more, in my opinion, it, it's it's more artful than scientific. Yes, I understand the science. Yes, there's physiology. Yes, all those things are important, but the artistry behind it is such a beautiful, messy part of all of this. So that's part one: is helping people understand that. Part two is helping people really understand that that there there has to be this psychological flexibility in terms of their identity being attached to those goals. Because the greatest frustration I see in the sport is when people don't hit that that arbitrarily assigned goal they have for themselves. Mm. It's a PR, it's a BQ, it's an OTQ, it's a whatever. It's all relative. But when they don't hit it and they fall short, they feel as though they've done something wrong or that something is wrong with them or that they'll never realize their potential or their goals. And that's a really hard place to bounce back from. So, of course, disappointment is absolutely a part of this. And you have to allow yourself to be disappointed when that occurs. But there has to be some prevention around that being devastating or taking these major shots at your identity as a human being. Yeah, and I think that ties into just that that third myth that we debunked a little while ago about this making you bulletproof. And it, it's realizing even if you work on these skills, much like if you do all the track workouts and all the long runs, it's like we're human beings, like stuff's still gonna, stuff's still gonna happen. And sometimes it's inexplicable. And I think that's where, um, at least with, with a certain subset of athletes, they have a hard time uh, wrapping their head around it, no pun intended. It's like, well, why, why did this go wrong? Like, what can we exactly pin it down to? And it's like, well, sometimes it's just a bad day, um, you know, or, or whatever, it, whatever it may be. But I find that to be challenging. And, and to your point, it can also be one of the most challenging moments to really help get them out of because they think it defines them or it defines their training block. Or, you know, it means that, oh, well, I'm, I'm just not capable of this thing. And then they don't want to try, you know, even, even further. So. Yeah, absolutely. It, it can be a really challenging area to try to bounce back from and to move forward from, right? Especially when outcomes are tied to identity. Yeah. Um, where I want to move on to from here is like working on the mental training in concert with the physical training and, and not as a separate thing. As we talked about, this is like a mind body system. And, and for me, the way that I approach like training my athletes when I'm writing their workouts, um, 
you know, it's not so much to improve their VO2 max or their lactate threshold. Like, doesn't mean that stuff's not important or I'm not considering it, but it's like, that's not what I want them thinking about when they're, you know, when they're out there. I mean, in, in a lot of their key workouts, I want to try and put them in similar situations to what they're going to face on race day. Cause I think that's an opportunity to like, you know, not only focus on, all right, what pace do I need to run or how does my cadence feel? It's like being aware of those things, but also just like, you know, mentally, um, what decisions am I going to make when this gets, you know, really hard when my, when my legs are screaming at me to, to stop. And I'm, I'm curious how you counsel coaches and athletes in, in that regard and how to kind of marry those two things into one. Yeah, I, I think that is the beauty of training, right? Is yes, you're, tra- you're training the physiological system to adapt, but you're also training the mental system to adapt as well. And you're giving people an opportunity. Training is an opportunity to make these decisions and to play with mental approaches. So the, the first approach I always recommend is to think about every single workout that you do has three basic time components. You have the pre-training, what we call priming. You have the workout itself, right? So while you're running, while you're working out. And then you have, I call it how you put your run away, right? The post-moment reflection. Now, here's, here's the first exercise I recommend for people. And it's going to sound terrible, but bear with me. First exercise is take that three time frame approach and just crap all over yourself for your next workout, right? As you're tying your shoes, tell yourself how awful it's going to be, how unprepared you are, how unsuccessful you're going to be, how painful it is, how you stink as a runner, how you're just never going to be successful. As you're tying your shoes, just do this self-disparaging commentary. Carry that forward so when you're running, right? As you're starting to move, just tell yourself, oh man, my body feels tough today. I'm feeling tight. I don't feel fast. I feel sluggish. I feel slow. There's no way I'm going to be successful out here today. This workout is going to be brutal, right? Some version of that. And then when you wrap your workout up, as you're putting it away, you hit stop on your watch. Remind yourself just what a crummy, terrible, awful athlete you are and how how you're never going to be successful in sport, right? Now, you're probably all listening to me thinking I'm a lunatic, right? But there's like, you can hear it and you can feel it. Even as I'm talking through it, you're like, oh my gosh, that sounds terrible. Why would I do that? Why would I do that? That has absolutely one, it's not going to connect to joy in the moment. Two, it's not going to feel very good. And three, I'm probably not going to perform very well at all. And the reason I start with that is there's this intuitive sense that, oh yeah, I guess the way we do talk to ourselves probably does really have an impact. And when we're on that pole, that extreme, it's really not going to feel good. So the second workout then is the next day, right? You go in and you don't have to be grandiose. It's not all unicorns and rainbows, but as you're tying your shoes and you're getting ready, a little priming of the mind about how excited you are for this workout, what an opportunity it is for you to go out and to be connected, right? And how you feel in your body. I feel capable. I feel strong. I feel prepared. I feel like I'm able to handle what's about to come. Carry that message forward in your training, right? So as you're running, you prime your mind with positive self-talk. I'm doing great. I can handle this. Self-efficacy self-talk, right? I remember doing hard workouts before and I've been able to stay on top of them, right? You have all these opportunities in the workout to play with different subsets of self-talk. And then when you hit stop, how you put your workout away is a really important element of putting this sort of like, you start to gel these concepts. So it's a quick moment of reflection of what you did well, 
I really stayed on top of it. I really stuck with it, even though it was hard. Boy, that last rep, whoo, that was a doozy. But I kept my mind in it. I stayed focused. And my effort matched the spirit of the workout. And I'm going to gain benefit from that, even if my paces were off. So the power of thinking, those are very two polar extremes. But they really do help you understand just how important that internal game is, not mm-hmm. only in terms of how workouts feel, but but what you get out of them. Yeah. You can do all of that like while you're warming up during and right after the workout, just in your mind. But how important, if at all, is it to maybe write some of this stuff down afterward? Because speaking for myself, what I've found to be very helpful is when I note that stuff in, in my training log that usually only I see, um, being able to to like literally get that out of my head and put it down on a piece of paper and and look at it and maybe revisit it a day or two later almost has like more of an impact than just doing it, you know, on the fly and in the moment. Absolutely. There's something to that, right? And and the beauty of all of our training platforms now, Final Surge, Training Peaks, Strava, they all have areas where you can put in notes, right? And Mm -hmm. the note taking provides a record, not only of what you did, but how you showed up and how that builds these mental skills. When you get close to race day, part of what we talk about is reviewing successes. And part of that, you know, the the cliche is trust your training. It's another saying I don't really like that much because I think you need to trust something specific about your training, including what you did in your mental performance, right? And so having access to that, which you'll have in memory, you'll have these light bulb moments of, oh, I remember that one workout. That was a doozy, but I stayed on top of it. Having it written down and when you go through your log and you see like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Now I remember. Oh, Mm -hmm. put that in the bank of mental toughness, right? That is really where the power comes in later on by taking a few minutes to write it down now. Yeah, I, I think it's huge. I've seen that myself as an athlete and also with the athletes that... I coach because we all, I mean, we all do it with the workouts, right? It's like if we do 800 meter repeats every, you know, four to six weeks or something like that, you know, in your mind, you're like, yeah, I think I ran those in like 232 and I was like two seconds faster this time. Then you go check your log and you're like, okay, yeah, I was two seconds faster this time. Great. You know, it feels good, but you don't have any other notes there. And I think it's, you know, even more important on the mental side of things because they're not, it's not necessarily hard numbers and you might not remember exactly how you felt in that moment, but if you've written it down and and you can revisit that, it almost to me seems to bring you back to that place. And you're like, Oh, okay. Like I definitely made improvements in, in this regard, didn't get so hard on myself. And, you know, because of that, Oh, I, I was actually able to have a better workout and you can connect those dots and actually see the power in it. Absolutely. That's it. It's like you start to string along this sense of that mental mindset, whatever that is that you're developing when you have it recorded and you have that ability to track. And the real power then is if you're doing this over years, right, you can look back and you can see what you've done previously. What were the self-talk messages or the, you know, the images or the attention that you put into certain workouts um, and how that stacks over time. Yeah. To shift gears a little bit. I'm I'm curious how you work with athletes who come to you and they're like, Dr. Ross, I I trained really well for this race. I was able to like hit all my workouts or, or this is not even just one race. Like this happens all the time. My my training is great. I hit everything. I feel good and then I go into race day and I completely I completely tank. Um and and you know what what can I do to just sort of like, you know, bridge that gap and make my my race a more accurate representation of 
of my training. I, I mean, I, I see this a lot with athletes that I coach and I'm curious if, if you see that a lot in your practice and how you help counsel those folks. Yeah, it, it happens a lot. Right. And so the, the work is always around understanding, right. Driving towards learning, because if, if you can execute in, in training or in practice, but you can't execute in competition. So you have the skills, you have the mastery in moments where there's no pressure, but then there's an event or a race or a pressure and you no longer have access to that same set of skills. It's probably psychological in nature. Now that gets more challenging the longer distance you go because you're never, you're never really training a 26.2 the way you would race a 26.2. So it gets a little tricky, but there's always going to be some exploration around what the barriers are. So part of it is helping the athlete understand that, right? Can't change what you're not aware of. What do you think is going on, right? What, what was your anxiety going into this? How are you managing anxiety? What happened in that moment of decision where you had to push into or lean into discomfort? What made it possible to do that in training, but what was the barrier in racing? Helping people understand those conditions. It's typically when that occurs in the endurance sporting context, usually one of a few things. One, anxiety was just too high from the word go, right? I had too much anxiety that had a physiological cost. I wasn't able to regulate it and it kind of sunk my performance. Two, I didn't trust the ability to push in a moment of discomfort or tension or pain. And so I backed it off out of fear, right? Fear that I was going to blow up or fear that I wasn't going to execute. And I got to the finish line and shoot, I, I think I left some some energy out there on the race course. Mm -hmm. Last bit related to, to racing. And we kind of started here at the top of the conversation, but you know, it seems to be like in the last week or two before race, as you're checking all the boxes heading into race day, it's like, okay, let's make sure that, you know, you're, you know, you're visualizing, um, you know, the, the course and like how you want to feel and and all of that stuff. And I think that's, I think it's well-intentioned, but I do think it's just cramming for the exam type of thing. And to your point, it's like, you know, you have to be working on those skills in, you know, the months leading up to the race so that, you know, much like training, it's like, we're not doing anything different on race week than we are at any other point of training. Yes, maybe we're doing a little less of it. It's not like quite as intense. It's more maintenance focused than, than anything. But when you have athletes leading into a race, like what are, you know, two or three of the key things that, you know, they should be focusing on as they're winding down and getting to the start line? Yeah. So I have this weird analogy about baking a cake. It's, it's kind of goofy, but I think it makes sense, right? So it's like, you know, when you bake a cake, right, you need a number of ingredients and you mix them all together and you put it in the oven and you hit the right temperature and then you pull that thing out, right? So it's kind of like training, right? You need a lot of ingredients kind of mixed together in the right sequence, baked at the right temperature at the right time and you take it out. Now, the, the biggest way to spoil a cake is to cut it the second it comes out of the oven, right? To cut it and serve it up. Like, ooh, that, that's not going to be any good. Then you're going to spoil the cake. And so there's a lot of resistance and self-control that has to occur from the moment you take the cake out to let it cool for quite a while. That's the taper phase. The taper phase is, oh, you've got this thing. It's baked and it's on the counter and I want to eat it. Right, I'm excited, and this thing looks good, and let's go. 
And that's what a lot of people feel on the taper, right? It's like, oh, I'm primed. I'm ready. I'm now, I'm starting to actually feel really good because I'm resting. I want to put this to the test. The hardest thing to do is to have that self-control, to trust that there's, you can't put any more ingredients in the cake at this point. No more flowers going into that thing. No more sugar. If you put sugar on top, you're just going to ruin the dang thing. So relax, right? Take a moment. These are the moments that you have to, I think, go back to gratitude and connection. I often recommend that athletes will um, write handwritten thank you cards to people in their life in the week before a race as a moment to say thank you. Thank you, Mario, for coaching me and all your expertise. Thank you to my partner for tolerating my long runs on Saturday. Thank you to my kids for understanding that I was maybe a little bit tired and allowed me to do this. Right, So you you write a a thank you for appreciation and then a a moment of just that gratitude. It feels really good and it helps you manage the emotional energy of just wanting to cut the cake and dive into it. Yeah, I I love that. I mean, I think gratitude's a powerful fuel. And it it made me think back to a conversation I had a couple years ago for this podcast with Diljeet Taylor, who is the cross-country and track coach at BYU for the women. And she has a, an incredibly successful program. And, and I think that's actually the quote I led off the episode with is she said, gratitude is at the center of everything that we do. And she's just not paying lip service that she actually practices. It. And she does exactly what you said. I, I, interestingly enough, before like all of her team's big races, she writes them each like a personalized thank you card. And, you know, it's like thanking them just for like, you know, working hard and being a good teammate. And, you know, I don't know exactly what goes into it, but it's along, you know, along those lines. And, you know, if you read articles about her, um, and, and the women are just like talking about that culture and like, you know, the relationship that they have with their coach and with each other. And it centers around that. You could tell them it's hugely impactful on them uh, and, and almost seems to, in some ways, like calm some of whatever anxiety they have leading into a big race. Yeah. Gr- gratitude is a positive, pro-social, connective emotion, right? It's a, a life enhancer. And Um, not just something to be celebrated the last Thursday of November, right? Like it's something we should be doing more often. And especially in in sport, it's not something we we do as often as maybe we might. Mm -hmm. Last thing I want to talk to you about in the time that we have left is goal setting. And I'm just getting into this part of the online training course that I'm, I'm doing with you. But, you know, to, to distill it down, I mean, we think of goal setting really in, in two ways. We have the outcome goals, and those are pretty obvious. I want to qualify for Boston, run the personal best, finish my first half marathon. It's like very tangible and something that more often than not you can you can measure. And then there's the process goals. It's those those little things that are not really all that sexy. Sometimes you can't really measure them. Yes, you can probably like check a box, but no one's going to give you, you know, an award for, um, you know, taking 10 minutes to work on your mobility each day or get eight hours of sleep at night or, you know, whatever it it happens to be. And I've got to think that a lot of athletes come to you and want help with goal setting. And I'm curious where, where you start with them and, you know, how you walk that path together. Yeah, I I love this area of focus. I think it's really important because almost every athlete that comes to me and probably comes to you as well, starts with an outcome goal. Like, mm-hmm. hey, coach, I, wa- I want to do A, B, or C and all the things you just referenced. 
And they're often really focused on, okay, what are the process steps I need to take to get there, right? Like, okay, let's dial those in. There's a sandwich in the middle that I call performance standards. And this sort of bridges the gap that helps people get from those process-oriented goals to the possibility of achieving those outcome goals. Performance standards are, are a set of guided principles that are near and dear to your heart that guide your approach to everything that you do. And so the reason this is important, so I think about, let's go back to, to Boston as an example. If your performance standard is, I want to lay it all out there on the race course. I want to feel like I squeezed every bit out of that performance as I possibly could. I want to feel like I matched the spirit of the workout with my intensity. That's my favorite one. Can you match the spirit of the workout with the intensity required to finish it? Not hit the numbers, but to finish it with the right spirit. The performance standards then are default modes for what you can fall back onto at any given moment in your racing. So you could be falling off your paces in a workout, but if your RPE matches the spirit of the workout, if you're in it with a performance standard of being both mentally tough, but also kind and compassionate to yourself at the same time, over time, you develop one heck of a strong athlete persona. And that's what we're driving for here. So you you recognize that that is a trainable skill, just like anything else. Outcome goals are are very, very tough, right, to achieve. They, they are not within your control. Performance standards can always be within your control. And if you take it into your training, you're going to be able to carry that into your racing. Awesome. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. I've loved it. This has been an awesome hour. Before we call it quits on this one, where's the best place for folks to find you online and what it is that you offer for athletes? Yeah. So you could find me just, my website's drjustinross.com. And um, yeah, we can work individually. I do a lot of work with teams, doing team coaching presentations. Um, so that's an option as well. Um, I have uh, this, this training plan that I've built. It's both on Final Surge and on Training Peaks that's available as well. It's, it's a 12-week program that's really about trying to scaffold and teach these mental skills in a very action-oriented way, right? Five minutes, 10 minutes a day. It's usually something to read and something to think about and something to to go out and do in your training with the goal of you take it with you as you're training your physical system. Um, so that's on both, both pages. If you use the code uh, PERFORMANCE10, that gets a 10% discount on, on either platform. Awesome. And I can personally vouch for it. I'm a little over two weeks into the program. And and for me, reading, because I get an email reminder every day about that day's workout and even looks ahead to the next day's workout, but I read through it and then I go out and do my run. And, you know, it's on my mind while, while I'm out there. And I think that's part of the, the point and trying to, trying to like, as we've talked about, like this is a mind body system and you want to put it into practice while you're out running. And sometimes, you know, it's something that I have to do when I get back, I take five or 10 minutes to, you know, answer some of the prompts or put some stuff in my journal. And um, just in a short period of time, I have found it to be, you know, really, really valuable. And I was like, why have I not seen something like this before? I'm like, it just seems like, like this just makes sense. Um, so definitely check that out. Um, but thank you for this conversation. It was awesome. I think it's going to help out a lot of people. And it's been a real pleasure to have you on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Oh, Mario, pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me and uh, happy training, everybody. Mm-hmm. 
All right, that's it for this one. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. If you could, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into this from. It means a lot to me, and it helps new listeners to discover the show. Also, a big thank you to my annual partners, Tracksmith, New Balance, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and Gooder for making it possible. Check out themorningshakeout.com slash partners to take advantage of some of the discount codes and special offers that are available exclusively to readers and listeners of The Morning Shakeout. Before we go, I'd like to give a quick shout out to John Summerford, who has edited and produced every episode of the podcast, and also Chris Douglas, who is my right-hand man and helps to keep this ship afloat. And that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.